Hello and welcome to episode 197 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. A quite startling story today. So many of the stories we hear about are based on a reaction to a specific event, whether immediate or a period of time later. Today's story is different and I'd suggest particularly chilling due to the premeditated nature of the offences. Before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That is Kurt Eisler, Ruby Kalanen, Jackie Rowan, Charlie Cummings, Janet Hacker and Lewis Lundy who has increased his support. It's great to have you on board and thank you so much for your support. If you haven't joined the fun yet, come and join the party at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And a special thank you to Lisbeth Kreitz, who headed to UKTrueCrime.com and made a donation to the running cost of this show via PayPal. Lisbeth, thank you so much. I'm delighted that this episode is again sponsored by Wooga, the creator of June's Journey. Have you played it yet? Released almost three years ago, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game set in the 1920s, with over three million active fans all around the world, including me. I love it as a game, as it's challenging but relaxing, and I adore the beautiful, colourful detail of the game. Each of the scenes you can see has been handcrafted. If, like me, you love the style of the 1920s, you'll love it. And even if not, the detective in you will not be able to stop playing as you take on the role of June who returns home to the family's estate only to find her sister murdered, leading to a global quest to solve the crime. This is a free-to-download mobile game available for free on mobile devices and on desktop through Amazon and Facebook. Come and join me and all the other players today. Download June's Journey for free from the App Store or Google Play or by clicking the link in the show notes for this episode. It's that time again. Guess the month and year for this week. Are you ready? Number one in the UK was Girls Aloud with Sounds of the Underground. In the US, the top spot was Eminem's worst song ever, Lose Yourself. Please don't tell me you like that. Next, you'll be saying that Kings of Leon continuously push musical boundaries. And the top album in Australia was Avril Lavigne with Let's Go. In the news this month, a bushfire killed four people and destroyed more than 500 homes in Canberra, Australia. Belgium legally recognised same-sex marriage. Just to be clear, in case you are confused. This is the 21st century. I know. Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, was sentenced to life in prison for attempting to bomb an American Airlines flight with 197 people on board. Sally Clark, a 38-year-old former solicitor from Cheshire, was released from prison after the Court of Appeal cleared her of murdering her two sons, who are believed to have suffered from sudden infant death syndrome. And finally, rock musician... Pete Townsend of The Who, was arrested in London on suspicion of possessing indecent images of children. He was, as you will recall, later cleared of all charges. So did you get the month and year? It was January 2003. Let's get on with today's story. Gregory Davis was as normal as you or I to those who knew him. When we joined the story in 2003, He was the sort of young man who was relatively attractive, relatively intelligent, and would just fit in with any other crowd of young people. 
His upbringing had been a happy one, spent with his engineer dad, carer mum and his sister in Great Linford, near the plastic cows of Milton Keynes, Buckinghamshire, about 55 miles northwest of London. He did okay at school and was artistic, and so went on to study art in the sixth form. From there he went to Harvard, oh, sorry, Northampton University, where he continued to study art. I guess it was here that was the first time he did anything that could be seen as not quite normal, as one of his creations at this time was a trophy plaque bearing the names of his favourite serial killers. But then again, neither you nor me are in any sort of position to make any negative comments about people with an interest in serial killers, right? After college, he worked in a supermarket and whilst there was seen as a good, hard-working member of staff who got on well with his colleagues and achieved decent results, he was even promoted. Life was pretty good for him as a 23-year-old as he had a number of friends and a decent social life. But it was at this time that he began a relationship with a married woman. And you probably won't be surprised to hear, this ended messily and left him distraught emotionally. He tried his best to deal with the situation, but he started to drink increasing amounts of alcohol to cope with the pain. As his alcohol intake increased, his mental health began to deteriorate and he went downhill rapidly. He was self-aware enough to see he was sliding into a depression here and so he went to the doctor where he was given medication to help him feel a little better. And at about the same time he began keeping notes in a leather notebook that his parents bought for him. Nothing unusual there. And nobody could ever have expected that he was actually taking his fascination with serial killers and murderers a huge step forward having taken the decision to become a serial killer and he was writing the names of his proposed victims in the book. These were people he knew or would even class him as a friend. Quite how he selected the people he did to be killed is unclear but let's take a look at some extracts from his diary. One read, Quick job tomorrow. Get Mick killed. Get Stuart to withdraw cash every day. When all gone, kill him. Repeat Mick plan ad infinitum all over country and world in Las Vegas and swanky bars. He got pleasure from people seeing him writing in his diary, assuming that he was writing a list or something similar. Then on the morning of the 28th of January 2003, the time had come to turn his plans into action. Quite what was the catalyst for him to begin on this day isn't clear at all, but he was determined to begin his murder quest. And the first person on the list was a friend of his, Stuart Johnson. Gregory left his house and got in his car. He was very calm, but also excited as the time had come for him to realise his ambition and start the killing spree. He had with him his choices of weapon, a claw hammer and a 12-inch blade. They were ready. Gregory turned on the ignition of the car and set off on the short journey to Stuart's house. But when he got there, it wasn't as he had seen it in his plans. Stuart was having his kitchen redone on that day and there were workers everywhere getting on with the job. Gregory turned off the ignition as he decided what to do next. To murder Stuart with all these people around would be way too risky, so it was time to reassess the situation. 
he decided he would instead move on to the next person on his list and Gregory restarted his car and calmly headed down the road for the short journey ahead. Stuart Johnson, meanwhile, carried on with his day, blissfully unaware of his lucky escape. Gregory soon pulled up in nearby Stantonbury, at the home of 48-year-old Dorothy Rogers, which she shared with her 19-year-old son Michael, following her divorce. Dorothy was great. She was a friendly, outgoing woman, with a wide circle of friends and always fun to be with. She'd been a secretary at nearby Cranfield University for most of her career, but a recent redundancy meant she was currently temping as she looked out for more permanent employment. Outside work, she enjoyed meeting up with friends at the theatre, music, and also spent time socialising at the Pilgrim's Bottle pub. It was there where she met a man called Mick Cowles, who was in his early 60s, and following the death of his wife, also enjoyed spending time at the pub. Dorothy and Mick clicked. They got on well, enjoyed each other's company, and grew close. Mick also became very fond of Dorothy's son, Michael. And at the pub where they still socialised together, they got to know many other people, including one young man, Gregory Davis, the man who was now heading to Dorothy's home with the intent to kill Mick. And as Mick was the next person on the list, so it was that this was the day that Gregory had decided that he was going to die. What happened next is beyond comprehension for what happens on a normal housing estate in England in mid-morning on just another day. Mick and Dorothy let Gregory into the house. Why wouldn't they? He was a friend. But Gregory was armed with a hammer and blade and quickly began an argument with Mick before attacking him three times with a claw hammer. Dorothy was screaming and trying to stop him attacking Mick further as he was lying badly injured on the floor of the kitchen covered in blood. So Gregory stopped and turned his attention to Dorothy. Using the most terrible violence, he stabbed her 31 times in front of her teenage son. And seeing the horror that was unfolding, 19-year-old Michael took his chance to escape and he ran and got as far as a nearby children's playground, which was busy with local people. Surely he would be safe there and he could get help for his mum and Mick. But he was hotly pursued by Gregory Davis. He caught Michael in the playground and in front of families and young children, Davis stabbed him repeatedly and disemboweled the teenager in the park. It was a dreadful scene, one which left Michael Rogers dead at just 19 years old, with no opportunity to fulfil all the potential he had. Just what a terrible waste of his life, and for what? The people present in the playground would never forget the sights, sounds and smells they witnessed that day. When he was certain that Michael was dead, Davis jumped in his bright yellow Fiat car and headed off. After all, he had a date with his girlfriend to keep. The scene he left behind was of course a dreadful one. Dorothy and her son were both dead by the time emergency services arrived. Mick was in a really bad way, but rushed to hospital where he was stabilised. Over the coming weeks he began to recover from the physical wounds, but the mental torment he had suffered from seeing Dorothy murdered and knowing that Michael was also killed was tough for him. And when he was eventually released from hospital, his friend saw an empty shell of the man he once was, and he began to drink much more than was healthy, 
to blot out the pain of what he'd been through. By the following October, Mick was also dead. One evening, after a number of drinks, he slipped down the stairs, and although he survived the fall, the complications following this accident led to his death, a broken man at just 63 years old. Going back to the day of the murders, police spoke to a number of witnesses in the park who remembered this seemingly normal young man, but they all remembered the bright yellow Fiat car. With this information, the police were soon able to round up Davis, and he was in custody. Davis's parents were devastated by what their son had done. Their lives instantly ruined. Can you imagine? All their friends and relationships could never be the same again. His parents spoke to some of his friends looking for answers or clues to how this could have happened. They just couldn't understand how their well-mannered, fun-loving and kind son could possibly ever act in this way. They knew he'd been upset after the breakup of the relationship and he'd been on medication. But to carry out a premeditated murder, killing people he knew so well from the local pub, well, that was way beyond anything they could understand. Facing trial at Luton Crown Court, Gregory Davis pleaded guilty to two counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and to causing grievous bodily harm with intent to Michael Cowles. Numerous reports from the experts at Broadmoor Secure Hospital were presented to the court and they'd assessed him prior to the trial and believed he suffered from depression, social anxiety and alcohol dependence and had suffered a psychotic episode when he murdered Dorothy and Michael and attacked Mick. In mitigation, his QC, Graeme Parkins, said The general public must appreciate that this was the action of a sick man. I wonder how you feel about that statement. Let me read it again. The general public must appreciate that this was the action of a sick man. The judge, Justice Richard Aiken, accepted Davis's plea and said, I'm satisfied you are suffering from mental illness and that it is appropriate that you be detained in a hospital for mental treatment. But within months of being sent to hospital, Davis was looking for a way to be released. He'd recruited a human rights lawyer on legal aid to help with this. And there were you and me just assuming that this man who could have committed such terrible acts would never be let back into society, or at least not for a long time until he was well, shown to be well and rehabilitated. His legal team managed to successfully argue that his psychosis was caused by a reaction to medication he was taking for depression combined with alcohol. As a result of this, in 2009, he was moved to a lower security hospital, which made his time much more bearable. In addition, he was given two hours unescorted leave four times a week. And shockingly, I think, despite a high-profile campaign from Dorothy's family to prevent him coming near to their home in Milton Keynes, he was allowed to go back there to see his mum when she was suffering from a terminal illness. And a mental health tribunal, conducted in private by a judge, ruled soon after that after just seven and a half years in a secure hospital, he should be conditionally discharged into supported accommodation in the community. There he would have regular meetings with health professionals to assess his condition and any medication he needed to live his life. Of course, the relatives of those affected were appalled with this, with one asking, 
Who's to say if he takes another course of medication, it couldn't have an effect on him again? How can a psychopathic double killer suddenly be cured and safe enough to return to society after so few years? But this being the UK, as you know, getting information is almost impossible, with the Ministry of Justice just saying it could not discuss individual cases, with an anonymous spokesman adding, conditionally discharged patients may be recalled to a secure hospital if there is evidence of increased risk to the public. And despite the numerous appeals against him being released back into the community, in 2011, Davis was released from hospital after persuading a mental health tribunal he was well enough to be given a conditional discharge. The conditions of that discharge were lifted just a few years later, so Gregory Davis was a free man, able to live just how he wanted. And he was only just in his 30s. With this new freedom, he started addressing what had happened before publicly, or at least he tried to. He sent an email to the local newspaper in Milton Keynes, which unsurprisingly was lacking remorse and strong on defending what he had done. He said the reason he'd acted as he did was because he believed the world was a video game, emanating from a blue orb on the back of his head. The crimes he committed were the only way that he could see that he could escape from his reality. He said, I thought nothing was real in the world except me, and that I had created the world as a game to test myself. I believe this information was emanating from a blue orb in the back of my head, and I had to do what it was telling me. I was convinced through the delusion that I had to be the opposite sort of person to how I had always been in order to break out of the unreality of the world I thought I was trapped in. Since in my life I'd always been a law-abiding, polite and kind person up to that point, I was deluded into believing that I had to do terrible things like killing people. Of course, the terrible acts I committed will never be healed for the victims' families, and I live with part of me destroyed by what I did. All I can do is try to live as good a life as possible and make a positive difference wherever I can. And not long after this, he turned his attention from the written word to video, as he posted a video on YouTube which was pretty hard to fathom. In it, he thought it would be a good idea to brag about his collection of expensive watches, with just one of the many shown in the video, a Patek Philippe, believed to have a value of around £25,000. At the same time as he was talking, he was sipping from what he claimed was an expensive glass of whiskey. As you can imagine, when the tabloids got hold of this video, it was soon removed. But this wasn't the only episode with Davis and watches. At one point, he tried to muscle in on a trip to Thailand with a group of luxury watch collectors. Well, I say that, that isn't quite true. They were a motley bunch who were the sort of people you see in Thailand who make you feel a little ill. But security checks revealed Davis's background and he was prevented from joining the trip. Some other videos he made around watches and whiskey are still on YouTube and I think are pretty disconcerting to watch. The one that I saw this week, Davis is in his kitchen with pot plants behind him, speaking in a slightly weird clip voice of his, even talking about how one watch he wears still means he can look good when working out in the gym. But he looks so young. Like me, he could easily pass for just 25. 
it makes you wonder how we could afford the watches and nice holidays and nice flats. But more than that, of course, these victims are terrible for the family and friends of the victims to see. But then what do you expect Davis to do? Suddenly a free man in a world where he'd done such terrible things and looking for some sort of identity. I guess the answer for most of us is that we don't want to see his face on videos. We would prefer to forget that he's free and maybe not think too much that he could be living just around the corner from us or our families and maybe be in the same gyms, pubs, dating sites and streets. So what do you make of what we've heard today? If you listen to this podcast, you'll know that my sympathy is always with the victims and I try, I really try not to talk too much about the perpetrators. But unfortunately in this story today, being unable to find much detail at all about Dorothy, Michael and Mick has meant I've had to talk way too much about Gregory Davis. I don't want to talk about him as this is one of those rare stories that have actually made me angry. I'm angry because he's a free man again at such a young age. It doesn't feel right, does it? One of the things I really dislike about all murders is how the names of victims are inextricably linked with those who killed them. It just feels wrong to me. On the one hand, we have Dorothy Rogers, a hard-working mum, kind, friendly, enjoying life with so much to look forward to, and her son Michael with so much of his life ahead of him, and yet they will be forever associated with the name of Gregory Davis. But whatever the motivation, it remains the case that he effectively murdered three innocent people and ruined so many other lives too on that terrible day, and yet now in his 30s, he still has the rest of his life ahead of him as a free man. How can that possibly be right? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of true crime, come and join the conversation on the UK True Crime Facebook group. And to listen to bonus episodes and all the behind the scenes stuff from the 37th most popular UK True Crime podcast, and to help me keep producing a weekly show, please, please, please support me on Patreon. Do it today and then you can watch me record next week's show live on Monday evening, 7.30 on YouTube. What more could you possibly want? Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that's all for me for today. Thanks again for taking the time to join me. And now it's that time that you dread. When it's time to say goodbye. I know, I know. But hey, the good news, arguably, is I'll be back next week. As consistent as a government A-level policy. Sort of. Anyway, hopefully I'll be a little less angry and on that educational bombshell, it's a cheerio from me. Please do take it easy and despite all the others, stay classy.